this goes. Put that, um, that overhead up for me, that wonderful graphic that I asked y'all to. We're going to start the year with a really good quality graphic, quality diagram. So if you can't make this out, that's okay. I'm going to help you sort this out. Um, I was in seminary before I began to sort of connect the dots on the full story of our Bible and the story of a people. And frankly, I was on the other end, on this end of seminary before things really began to fall into place of what happened when. It wasn't built into me. Um, turn these lights down for me. It wasn't built into me uh, as a child and as a young man growing up in church. So effectively, I became a New Testament junkie. And ironically, being a New Testament junkie with really no sense of the big storyline, it was like parachuting into the New Testament. You think about when, you know, soldiers parachute in or Marines parachute in somewhere, without some sort of lay of the land, you, have no, you don't even know what your cardinal directions are. You don't know where the bad guys are. You don't know where the good guys are. You don't know anything. And that's effectively what happens if you parachute into the New Testament, if you become a New Testament junkie without understanding the full storyline. So this may seem a little academic. I always kind of feel a little funny on a, on a sermon starting this way, but I needed what you're getting right now years ago. So just a couple of moments to sort of orient you to the story before we climb in to the book of Malachi, if you want to be turning there while I'll explain this little diagram here. On the far left, you know, and I thought about this too, Jeff Willingham gave me a little laser pointer that, I, that is in my office right now as we, as we speak. That would be really handy right now, but we don't need it, so don't, nobody race off and grab it. On the far left of this line... Uh, it was about 2,000 years before Christ. This is a way to sort of remember how the story unfolds. And I have right, written right above that, Abe for Abraham. That's about the time that Abraham came into the storyline, about 2,000 years before Christ. Midway through is 1,000 years. All the way to the right is the cross. Okay, so just orient. It's about 2,000-year window before Christ right here on the wall. Okay. Just left of center is 1,500 years before Christ. That's Moses and the Exodus, okay? And th these aren't uh, exact dates. They're general. So you don't, I mean, unless you're a real historian, it's not that essential that you know the, the exact dates. But general dates are, are really helpful. 1,500 years before Christ, Moses and the Exodus. And then between Moses and the Exodus and David, you have the period of the Judges, Look at there. I knew you were going to do that, didn't you? You probably saw that, and he went and fished him off. Look at that. <laughs> Boom. Judges right there. Now it's really feeling academic, isn't it? We're going to move to a sermon here in just a second. Judges is right there between Moses and the Exodus and David, okay? And then David's right in the center about 1,000 years before Christ. So that would be Saul, David, Solomon, period, right there in the middle. And then about 500 years before Christ is right here, just so you have a reference. Because where we're going to be spending our morning is right here, but I want you to have a sense of what's unfolded here. Israel goes into exile to Assyria about 740 years before Christ. Israel. You may remember that Israel and Judah are separated kingdoms at this point. When I say Israel at that point, I'm talking about not Judah. I'm talking about the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, Judah goes to Babylon in exile, 587 B.C., when the temple was destroyed. I, 
I went through seminary not knowing this stuff. I mean, this is basic Christian understanding. This is basic Christian story, okay? 587 B.C., the temple's destroyed. Judah goes into exile in Babylon. And then Cyrus has a decree. The Persian king Cyrus decrees in 538 B.C., you guys can go back to... Excuse me. You guys can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple. And there's some stories, some books that go along with that, which is the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, where the temple and the wall are rebuilt. Now, we are just barely behind that right here in the book of Malachi this morning. It's within 100 years or so after Cyrus's decree where you guys can go home. We're within 100 years since the tabernacle, or excuse me, the temple and the wall have been rebuilt, okay? That's where we are in the storyline right now. So you can shut this thing off and then we can climb into our message. Malachi, I'll give you a little bit more context. About four to 500 years before Christ, the contemporaries are Ezra and Nehemiah. Malachi comes just barely after Ezra and Nehemiah. So this is a period that's called post-exile or post-exilic. You may hear that word. Somebody refer to that word. Don't be afraid of phrases like that. They sort of give you uh, a parking place for a time period. Post-exilic period. The temple has been rebuilt and the wall has been rebuilt. Now think about this for a minute. Here's the beauty of not parachuting into Malachi, but taking a moment to get the lay of the land. You can climb into the mind of the people and you can imagine what you would hope they would have learned and what you would hope they would know by this point. You would hope by this point, post-exilic, that they would have learned some pretty important things through the exile, the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile. You would hope that they've learned to be faithful. You would hope that they've learned to be all in, to be all there. You would hope they've learned to be wholehearted. You would hope that they've learned to be true, wise, sober, committed. You would hope so. This morning, we're going to see what actually took place the actual condition of this people within a hundred years of Cyrus's decree where you guys can go home, rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall. Malachi is gonna give us some insight into this story. Malachi is broken up into six things that are called disputations, six disputations. We're not gonna look at all of them today. We're only gonna look at the second Disputation. I hope everyone found Malachi. You're going to need to have your eyes on this book today. I'm not a storyteller. I'm not a joke teller. I'm not uh, really here to entertain at all. My job is to unpack this book, and it's helpful if you see where we're unpacking today in the book of Malachi. It's on page 801 of my ESV, which is likely the same page number as your pew Bible. It may not be. The pew Bible, I know we don't have pews, but it'll be the Bible underneath your chair. So I encourage you, pull that book out. Don't look at me for the next however many minutes because you'll get really tired of that. Look at your book, at the words that we're going to engage together. This book, like I said, is broken up into six disputations. The second and the fifth disputation have to do with Israel's offerings. 
are the quality or lack of their, their offerings. And the whole book has to deal with the leadership of Israel. By this point, post-exilic, Israel is Israel. There's no Israel in Judah. It's all called Israel by this point. So when I refer to Israel, I'm not, no longer talking northern kingdom at this point. I'm talking the people of God, north and south, everybody. And especially this is written to those that have moved back into Jerusalem and the surrounding area, what we might call previously before exile, Judah. I want to summarize for you for a moment the problems that are taking place that you're going to see unfold in chapter 1. We're going to look at chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 9. Here's what you're going to see unfold. This people and their leadership has lost their, have lost their all. They've lost their awe and their fear of the Lord. This people has mo- have moved into a place of what you will clearly see in a moment of half-hearted worship. And tragically, they've even become bored. Let's begin. In chapter 6, excuse me, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, I'm going to read a couple of passages here and there. We're going to make a, I'm gonna make a few comments. We're going to lightly unpack that section, and then we're going to look at what this has to say about Israel, what it likely has to say about us, if we're honest, what it has to say about God, and then what we're called to as a result of what God is saying through Malachi here, beginning in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may be despised? The people and the priests at this point of what we're talking about, what we're going to find today, they are despising God's character. When there's a reference to his name, we're talking about who he is as a being. They are despising all that God is. How? By offering polluted food on the altar. By polluting the Lord's table, and the priests are offering, are approving of it by saying it's okay to do so. How did they do this? Let's keep reading and find specifically. Verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Go give a blind or lame or sick gift, animal of some sort, to your local official and see how he receives that. Continue in verse 9. And now entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious to us. That phrase drips with sarcasm. It's not an encouragement to now go entreat God and try and find favor. Malachi is saying, keep doing what you're doing and realizing what's taking place. You're entreating the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. 
but your actions show otherwise. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. If only there was someone that had the courage and the guts to go grab the keys and close the door to the temple and lock it shut, saying enough is enough. Maybe if we bar the doors, we will, we will, we will stop offering in vain. He's polluted, blind, lame, sacrifices. Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is a beautiful passage and my favorite passage in the whole book of Malachi because it's pointing to something that's going to unfold 450 or so years later when the pure offering is offered. And his name is made great among the nations at Pentecost when people just go poof after Pentecost and they go home to the diaspora all over the Roman Empire and they take the good news of a pure and perfect sacrifice. That's what this passage is talking about. You guys are offering lame, polluted sacrifices. Do you realize what's coming? If you'll just hang in there 450 years later, the perfect and pure sacrifice is coming. This is a beautiful foretelling of what's to come and what's in store for the nations when they are made glad with the coming of Christ as king and a pure offering on the cross. Verse 12, but instead, but you, two tragic words, but you, on the other hand, profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its fruit may be despised, but you, this is coming and yet this is how you move. A serious contrast is being made right here. A serious contrast between what's in store and what's actually the tragedy of what's actually taking place. Israel is effectively saying, what's the big deal? God's okay with blind and lame and sick. He just wants us to show up. Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness is this. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence are as lame and sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Add to the list of blind and lame and sick those that are torn to pieces by wolves and predators. You bring half-eaten calves as your offering, and then you snort at it like it's a chore. What a chore this is. What a weariness this is. I'm bored with this, is what they're accused of saying. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. There it is again. This emphasis on what's coming 450 years later, and look at what you're doing 
They're cheating God by vowing the best and then giving the last. Vowing the best and giving their leftovers. Continue in verse one of chapter two. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you. God's not a chump. He's not a chump. I will send a curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. That's pretty graphic. Because this is not a heart venture for you and you've grown comfortable with giving God your leftovers. I hope that you maybe get a little bit uncomfortable right now. You may get more uncomfortable later. Because this is not a heart venture for you and you've moved in the direction of going through the motions, because you do not lay it to heart, I'll curse your blessings. The very things you priests are offering as words of life and encouragement and hope for the people will become curses instead. Instead of words of life and hope, there will be cursing. And I will rebuke your offspring and I will spread dung on your faces. When a sacrifice was prepared for offering, dung was removed from their bodies as, long as, as, as well as the entrails and things like that. And God through Malachi says, you know what? I'm gonna take that stuff that you're throwing out because of what you're, how you're polluting the, t- the table and what you're offering and how you're offering it and I'm gonna take that stuff and I'm gonna smear it all over your faces. Man, that's graphic. Verse four, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. A great example of that just recently, right before these, this time period, would be Ezra. Ezra. Read Ezra. Read how this guy, this Levite, Ezra, moved. Fear and awe, wonder at the name of God. But it appears these priests, their awe has waned. They've become complacent and satisfied with going through the motions. Look at verse six. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. Think about Ezra, think about Levi, think about some of those quality priests, Phineas, not Phineas and Hophni, but Phineas, the grandson of Aaron. Quality priests in this Levite story. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned away from, and turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you, on the other hand, have turned aside from me from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the peoples. Just imagine, just imagine the picture of a priest with dung smeared on his face. 
inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should actually seek instruction from him. But instead, these guys have caused people to stumble by teaching and saying, it's okay to just bring something. It's okay to just show up. It's just okay to give some lip service and no heart behind it. It's okay. And they've shown partiality in how they allowed this and taught this. I wondered how it may have gone down, just trying to climb into the life of a priest and imagining that these guys are made of the same thing I'm made of. I'm wondering how it may have gone down. It may have gone down like this. A guy that's a big contributor, maybe. A guy that has a lot of money or a lot of influence in the community comes to the temple with a buck tooth, ugly, lame, blemished lamb to sacrifice at the temple, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't want to make this guy mad. I don't want to alienate this guy. I want to court this guy. I want this guy to become part of our story here. I want him to become a faithful guy that's bringing lots of money to the temple. I want him to be a guy that says good things about me. So he presents a buck-toothed lame sacrifice at the temple, and this priest turns a blind eye on this one. Maybe he accepts it because he wants to be accepted by this fine, upstanding man. Or maybe it went down like this. Maybe it wasn't necessarily a rich, upstanding guy. Maybe it was just a guy with a temper. Maybe it was a guy that was just so contentious, so prone to having a bad temper that he's going to eat your lunch if you don't agree with him. He shows up with a calf that's been injured, that's been torn to pieces by a predator, and the priest accepts this offering because he's not up for the fight with the guy that he's going to have if he objects to it. I mean, these guys are made of the same stuff we are. Imagine. <laughs> I don't have the energy for this guy today. Bring it on here. Let's sacrifice it. God will understand. Or maybe it's a guy just with a critical spirit that's just critical about everything. Every single word that's said is so analyzed and so criticized, brings a sickly one, and you just don't even want to deal with the criticism, so you just come on in here, let's sacrifice, and let's get it done. And you can be on your way because I'm just tired of you. I'm imagining how these priests could have landed in this place and realized what they're guilty of here is something that I can be guilty of, something that any of our elders can be guilty of, something that our deacons can be guilty of, something our small group shepherds can be guilty of, something that our family shepherds can be guilty of because we all serve as sort of priests in those little capacities. We can be guilty of fearing man more than we fear God. I don't want to make my wife mad, though I know this is what God wants for us as a family. So we're going to do what my wife wants. I'm not picking on wives and saying that. I'm, I'm thinking as a man. I don't want to make our small group mad, so we're going to do what they want instead of what I believe God clearly wants for our small group at this point. I don't want to do what God wants us to do as a church because I don't want to make anybody mad because I don't have the energy for the mad guy. Or I don't, I don't want to make the, the guy that has so much influence and money mad and alienated because then what's he going to say about us in Greenville? Man, this travels. I hope you see that this travels. We'll talk more about this in a minute. 
But here's the problem restated at this point. The problem restated is these guys were half-hearted and even bored. They lost their awe and they showed partiality as they allowed polluted offerings at the temple, the lame, the sick, the torn. They allowed these things and they presented them and they offered them themselves. So they were in cahoots. So what does this tell us about Israel first? Told you where we're going this morning. What does it tell us about Israel? What is it, and maybe us? What does it tell us about God? And then what are we called to? First about Israel. It tells us that sheep are stupid and forgetful. What a beautiful application of the language of our Bibles that call the people of God sheep. In the last hundred years before this happened, they had been ripped from their homes, 150 years or so, 170 years to be specific. They'd been ripped from their homes, dragged to Babylon, dragged to Assyria. Their sons were made eunuchs in the king's court. They faced this sort of drama. If you remember Scott's message from a few, few weeks ago, the, the story of Esther, they faced the sort of drama where a pagan king would have your fate in his hands, or at least it seemed. We know better now because we know the story. And then through a mighty providential movement, God moves a pagan king, Cyrus, to decree in 538 BC. You guys can go home and rebuild the tabernacle, or excuse me, rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall. So they go home and they rebuild the wall and the temple in a time of real faithfulness, the time of Ezra and the time of Nehemiah. And then less than 100 years later, Israel and her leadership has regressed back to complacency and going through the motions. And the, the, the third dispens, or the third, dis, excuse me, the third disputation that we're not even getting into today, adultery with the world and cheating on their divine husband. Not even a hundred years later, and they've moved back into this place. The polluted offerings, I think, are metaphor for the condition of these people's hearts. Polluted, distracted, divided, cooled, bored, blind, sick, blemished, violence-torn. The offerings are just metaphor of what the, the hearts were behind the worship. It seems that Israel needs Malachi's message. I don't know how they received it. I don't imagine that the priest took kindly to Malachi, a layman, saying that God's gonna smear dung on your faces. I don't imagine they really received this message really well, whether however they received it, they needed it. The sad thing is this isn't the only occasion where God's people look like this. As I was reading this story, I thought back to the period of the judges or front end of the judges, the period where Joshua and the, the conquest, and listen to this passage. I'll just tell you where it is, but I'm already there. You can turn there later. Judges chapter two, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. You could take that same phrase and import it into the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Go home, build the temple. Go home, build the wall. Go home to your land that you've pined for. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him, and it still has a little information about his burial. And then in verse 10, listen to this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, 
And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Unfortunately, this little drama here, within 100 years, this is taking place as well. It just sounded especially familiar. And I'm thinking, man, what a bunch of sheep. What a bunch of sheep. It's deja vu all over again. I thought to myself, am I any different? Are you any different? Do you grow complacent and forgetful in times of ease and blessing? Like Brad said last week, does your Bible gather dust? Are you any different? We can look at them and say, what a bunch of buffoons. What a bunch of sheep. What a bunch of knuckleheads. But I ask you the question, are you any different? I'm not. Man, I'm not. Do you find yourself easily satisfied and content with worldly things? Man, I'm not sure we're that different. It's a malady of the people of God. It's a malady of the church. We have the epistles, the letters that Paul and John and other guys, Peter, wrote. We also have the book of Revelations. Seven churches get a letter there, sort of a report card. Here's how you're doing, churches. Two of those seven had problems that sound familiar. One of them, Laodicea, is being accused of being lukewarm. He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And then Ephesus, he says, you, Ephesus, you're faithful, but you know what? You've lost the love that you had at first. Man, I'm reading the story here about the people of God in Malachi, and it sounds familiar to the people back in Joshua's time. And it sounds familiar to the people here in the book of Revelation. It sounds familiar to me. Does it sound familiar to you? I fear three things, not fear like I run from it, but fear I'm concerned about three things, that we, not just Israel, gravitate toward half-heartedness. And gravitate, I was thinking about, that might be the word I'm looking for, but maybe a better word is the word migrate, like a glacier, slow, almost imperceptible. You can't see it. You just measure it, and you go, ah, that thing moved. And you look at yourself and go, ah, I moved imperceptibly, moved toward half-heartedness. I can almost imagine how these guys in this context here in Malachi grew bored with the sacrificial system. Honestly, I, just being real honest, I can almost imagine the slog of raising unblemished sheep or goats or lambs or calves or whatever. The slog of having to try, you know, from day to day, where's the one that's unblemished? Where's the one that's acceptable? And then going to find that one, march him off to the temple, stand in line in the temple, go through the process while the priest, through the sacrificial system, pays for your sins. I can almost imagine how these guys could get bored with that. And if you're a real sinner, you had to do it all the time. I, it's just been like a daily thing. I'm off to the temple again. See you tomorrow. I, 
can almost imagine how they could be bored with that. But how much less reason do we have for boredom and half-heartedness in worshiping and worshiping with and through and by the pure and perfect sacrifice of the lamb that not only was sacrificed, but is risen and is seated and is reigning and is ruling and is continuing to speak every single day through this. How much less reason do we have for boredom and half-heartedness? Man, some people think this side of Christ, that the bar has been lowered because now we're in a grace age. Man, you need to read your Bible. God doesn't care about how you move now because Christ paid for your sins. He'll forgive you. It's his job. Man, I'm going to tell you, reading the book of Hebrews, if you've been paying attention to the book of Hebrews, which we're going back to in a couple weeks, the bar has been raised. It's not a works-based salvation. It's an appropriate response to the pure sacrifice that has been offered. Man, I can almost understand how they got bored with this. See you tomorrow. How could we be bored with what we are walking in? The final sacrifice that purifies you for all time. Wow, that convicts me right there, boy. Man, I can be the best. I can go through the motions with the best of them. There's no room for that given our sacrifice. Second thing I fear is that we're great at justifying half-heartedness, that we can easily reconcile giving leftovers. I was thinking about this scenario. This is not a scenario that's played out in our home, but it's a scenario that I have, I, I'm witness to. So as I share this scenario, I have been witness to at times. Don't, this is not an indictment against Christy or our marriage. It's just an example. It'd be like a woman who can easily say she doesn't have time to enjoy her husband. Just easily say, well, you know, you talk about the role of a wife, enjoying and respecting her husband. You're like, I'm busy doing life, y'all. <laughs> I mean, have you seen these kids? I got dinners to prepare. I got kids to raise. I got jobs to do for those of you that work. I don't have time to enjoy my husband. I got chores. I got family. I got friends. I got soccer. I got 8,000 things that are in the air and you want balls in the air and you want me to enjoy my husband? I don't have the time or energy to be really close to anybody, much less him. And the same sad truth is that we can do the same thing with our divine husband and find ourselves busy and just existing with him, hoping he knows we love him. God, you know I love you. You're not getting my first and my best. You're not getting all my attention, but you know I love you. You can imagine that wife with her objecting husband. I don't feel loved. Thanks for dinner, but I don't feel connected. I don't feel like we're really enjoying each other. Man, we can so easily find ourselves just going through the motions with him, taking him for granted. 
It's a sickness that can infect any single one of us, and the sickness is called cheap grace. Cheap grace. And here's the symptom, the common symptom for cheap grace. Sounds like this. God will forgive us. It's his job. God will forgive us. It's his job. I fear too, the third fear that I have is that we like Israel can become satisfied and maybe even comfortable with leadership that does not lead. We can become leaders too who are too beaten and bruised and tired to lead faithfully. What unfolded here as I read the story in Malachi, it amazes me that the people and the leadership were actually in cahoots for sorriness. It amazes me. They're offering blind, lame, sick, violence, torn. The priests are allowing cheating by vowing the good stuff and giving the crummy stuff. Leadership is approving of all of the above. But I thought to myself, how likable those priests must have been. Right? He's, I so love priest Bill. He's so easygoing. His teachings always make me feel so good. He never objects to anything in my life. He just tells me, points out the great stuff in my life. I so enjoy priest Bill. He's so non-confrontational. He's peaceable, right? Man, I had this thought. I wonder how those priests slept at night, and then I got honest with myself, and I said, I know how they sleep. I'm ashamed I know how quickly and easily they can sleep. I don't have the energy for it. I've said that myself at times. I don't have the energy for dealing with this with this person. I don't have it. I'm too beaten. I'm too bruised. So I'm going to let them continue offering a buck-tooth lamb. Tired. I'm just going to try and keep offering the right sacrifice myself, not realizing I'm in cahoots when I allow that sort of walk with the angry man or the contentious man or the critical man, this continue, this fear of man that's so easy to embrace can happen to any single one of us. This isn't just a pastor issue. This is a small group shepherd issue, a deacon issue. This is a shepherd of family issue. That's why this is speaking to every single one of us. Wives, don't be happy with a man that just tells you everything that's great about you. I hope you hear that. I hope you're hearing from your husband all the great things that are about you. But I hope you're also being washed with the word and occasions where you're saying, babe, this, we can't move this way. Honey, I love you, but you need to hear me in this. God has called me to shepherd this family. And God has called me to lead and love you. And I wanna be faithful in doing that. And if I fear you more than I fear God, I won't say it. Because it'll be hard at home. But God's called us to be faithful people. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that God is not okay with half-heartedness. He is the great king 
the Lord of hosts, and he is awesome, awe-worthy. And he is not satisfied with less than your best. He's not satisfied with going through the motions. Heartlessness. And I think that's probably because he gave his best. I want you to hear that. It sounds almost like a stupid billboard. I don't care what it sounds like. God's not satisfied with less than your best because he gave his best. So what does God expect of his people? He expects wholeheartedness. He expects blamelessness. It's a word I've used before. It doesn't mean the sinlessness. You're going to fail people in God. You will. But he expects you to be all in. He's not okay with going through the motions with him. He expects wholeheartedness. If he is this upset, dung-smearing upset, over half-heartedness in offering sick, lame, torn sacrifices, how must it leave him if we half-heartedly offer up the perfect lamb of God? That's the message of Hebrews so far. That's the appeal of the Hebrews preacher. How much more angry or frustrated will he be with that? Shouldn't that fine offering be accompanied with zeal? Shouldn't it be? Shouldn't we be all in as we worship through every aspect of our lives? There's a passage here in Malachi that I think nicely connects to that concept. It's the passage that I mentioned, verse 11, that's this foretaste of things to come 450 years later. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. We're walking in that period right now. And look at the imagery. Incense burned, worship taking place in every place. That's not just talking spatially. That's not just talking about, okay, here in Greenville, worship is going to take place. It's more than spatial. It's social. It's relational. It's chronological that he will be enjoyed and worshiped. God is speaking to God's people through Malachi saying, there's a time coming 450 years from now when the pure and perfect sacrifice is offered where this thing is gonna go to the nations and the nations are gonna be made glad and you know what's gonna happen? Worship is gonna be taking place in every place, in every marriage, in every parenting relationship, in every work environment, in every cubicle, in every warehouse where the people of God go. In every hangar, in every car, as you talk on the phone, as you think, in every kitchen, in every den, in every bedroom, in every place is what this is speaking of. We're walking in that period now. In every place, too, could be having to do with sort of the compartments that we have in our own lives. You know, I have this compartment. You know, I have the sports compartment, right? Nathan, I have this special sports compartment because I love sports so much. 
just using that example, just picking on those people that love sports, nothing wrong with that. In your hobbies, let's just say hobbies. In work, in hobbies, in activity, in marriage, in parenting, in, in being a neighbor. Every single place, in every place means every place. That's wholeheartedness. Taking Christ into every relationship, every environment, in every place. It's the only appropriate response to the pure sacrifice, the final sacrifice. I think that's what he wants. I think something else that he wants is he wants leadership that's impartial and leadership that doesn't just give a rubber stamp. Okay, yes, you made an effort. Yeah, thanks. God will be happy with that. Leadership that's strong, I thought of a couple of passages. I'll read these to you. I'll tell you what the references are so you can look at them later. Mark 12, 14 is the first one. These are passages that I read and I said, I want to be this guy. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. The word there, the phrase there, not swayed by appearances, there's a little note down in my ESV, the same note for this other reference I'm going to read, says you do not look at people's faces. There's sort of a symbolic thing for me every Sunday when I preach, I want those lights turned down. I don't want to be influenced by faces. That's figurative for how I want to move as a pastor. I want to shepherd the flock tenderly, knowing the dispositions and knowing the predispositions and the things that, the little nuances that people carry around, their storyline and the, the individual character of each individual sheep. But I don't want to see your faces in terms of who has what money, who has what influence, who's likable, who's not. I don't want to see those sort of faces because I, across the board as a leader, want to be impartial with the truth. That's what I think we're called to as leaders, as shepherds of a church, shepherds of a small group, shepherds of a family, leadership that doesn't see faces. Here's the other passage, Luke 20, 21. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality. And then down the note, the note below, and you do not receive a face, but truly teach the way of God. Mm. that's the kind of leader I want to be. That's the kind of leader I want you to be for those of you that are leading in different capacities, that you're impartial, that you speak the truth in love, that you're the same man or woman, however you're leading here, that you are in your den, that you are in your hangar, that you are in your cubicle, that you are in your car, that you are on Facebook, the same Man, impartial. I'm going to ask you this morning what you're going to do with 2014. Is it just a change of date where you have to just remember, okay, it's a 14 on my check, not a 13. Ah, scratch that check out. Void. <laughs> Run no check. Is that all it is? Or is it an opportunity to say, I want to be intentional this year. I want to be very intentional about growing in some areas this year. God has given me sort of a, a, a sunrise 
He's given me a new day. He's given me fresh mercies. He's given me a new opportunity to do some things and walk in some things this year. And I want to ask you, what are you going to do with this year? Are you going to be intentional being all in? If you don't have zeal, you know there are people that can help you with that. There's some things that you can do. You're probably not going to have the things that you need by yourself, so you're going to need community. You're going to need the people of God walking with you. If you don't have understanding, maybe we can work on that too. If you don't have time, we can help you work on that too. Man, will you coast through this year? First sermon I ever preached here 10 years ago, something like that, was from the Ephesians. And there's a passage that says, make the most of your time for the days are evil. And I ask you, are you going to make the most of your time this year? Pursuing a sacrifice that's worth pursuing wholeheartedly. Being about efforts and endeavors that are worth being about because of the quality of what you're after. Will you work at putting sin to death? while you enjoy Christ more intentionally? Will you know and be known by God's people? For those that may have gone through 2013 or 2012, 2011 even, not really knowing or being known by God's people and sort of being a spectator, will you this year be intentional about knowing and being known? Leadership, whatever your capacity, leadership, will you be okay with just an effort? Or will you call God's people to their best for the great King, the Lord of hosts? I wanna ask for this specifically for us as a church in prayer. Let's pray together. God, I am so thankful for this beautiful picture in Malachi. This beautiful picture that is just so honest as we consider the nation of Israel and consider sheep, consider the, the tendencies of your people. Lord, I know my own tendencies and I know the tendencies of this people. And I, Lord, I pray that you would stir us up by way of reminder of the fineness, the wonder, the perfection of the sacrifice that we walk in. Lord, that 2014 would be characterized by zeal, wholeheartedness, that we would be all in, that we would be blameless in the way we move with God's people, the way we move with those that don't know you, that we'd be consistent, that we'd be impartial with truth and gospel, that we would not see faces too closely. Lord, I pray that we would be characterized as a church that is enjoying our first love. That we'd be characterized as a people that are white hot, not lukewarm. Because we are stirred up with joy over what you've done for us in Christ and the perfection of our sacrifice that is currently seated and is reigning and is ruling and is hearing this prayer that we pray right this minute. 
Lord, you say we don't have because we don't ask. We're asking right now. I ask for these things, for your namesake, and in keeping with the perfection of the pure and final sacrifice. Amen. Supper this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you'd like to turn there. Paul studied under a guy named Gamaliel. It was sort of the Harvard of Judaism. And I just can't imagine that Paul wouldn't have studied the, the last Old Testament prophet, Malachi. I can't imagine that he wouldn't have spent some time studying closely a guy that's the closest to their context. About 450 years, 500 years by, by Paul's time or so, distance between Malachi and Paul. I can't imagine that Gamaliel wouldn't have spent some specific and intentional time looking at Malachi. And as I read 1 Corinthians, these really two chapters, chapters 10 and 11, they just sound so familiar to what was going on with the people of God in the book of Malachi. He uses even some of the same language. It's interesting. I found in Malachi that reference to the table that is being defiled. You are defiling the Lord's table. That's the only reference in the Old Testament to the Lord's table. Malachi. And the final prophet that's closest to Paul, and Paul is using the same language here where he's talking about the table of the Lord. And he's talking about things like idolatry. He's warning the Corinthian people against idolatry in chapter 10. Listen to this verse in 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Table language right here. And then he goes on, he says, do all things to the glory of God. It sounds like worship in every place, using the same sort of language. Do all things to the glory of God. Cubicles, warehouses, hangers, cars, dens, kitchens, bedrooms, marriages, parenting, every single thing. Do all things to the glory of God. He's reading Malachi's mail. Head coverings is what he talks about next. That's the heading there. But he's really talking more about reverence. He's talking about an appropriate response to the great king, the Lord of hosts. Awe and fear of the Lord. And then in chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, he's dealing with divisions and then goes into the Lord's Supper. Let's start reading there. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you come together. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the same language of Malachi? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread 
When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the same sort of language of Malachi, the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul is talking to a church about fidelity and teaching them about an appropriate response to the perfect offering. And the example he uses is what we're about to do together. That we eat from one table and we eat heartily, wholeheartedly, undivided, not despising what this represents. So I encourage you right now as we take the first supper of the year, to judge yourselves rightly. And here's what I want to recommend. As you judge yourselves rightly, if you look at yourself and you say, you know what, man, I've been kind of bored. I've been kind of half-hearted. I've been kind of going through the motions. Here's your options. If you're okay with just continuing on with that, don't take this supper. <laughs> Please. If you're okay with just going through the motions with God, don't take this meal. That's the point of what he's saying right here. But if you're all in, even if you haven't been, if you say, Lord, I prayed with Ben this morning that we by faith this coming year would be all in as a family, that I would be all in as an individual, that I would respond appropriately to the pure and perfect sacrifice, knowing that you will fail. But if you prayed with me asking then I trust you're going to grow in that. And you take and eat heartily, eating from one table. Let's take and eat together this morning. <laughs>